1,000 Better Stories. Welcome to 1,000 Better Stories, the Scottish Communities Climate Action Network's podcast sharing stories of community-led climate action in Scotland to help us all imagine a better and fairer future beyond the new normal and transform what we think is possible. Hello, my name is Kashka. I'm one of the SCAN's story weavers and I will be your host for today. A couple of months ago, I published a blog with a collection of Scottish podcasts relating to the climate crisis and visions for a better future. You can find a link to it in the episode notes. We were very impressed with the range and quality of those voices and the compelling stories they were telling. And in the true spirit of our new Scan Storytellers Collective, we thought they deserved to be amplified through our 1000 Better Stories podcast. And so the idea of a magazine episode was born. We approached everyone included in the collection, and today we feature the first three podcasts who came forward. We hear from Cole Gordon about his landed series with Farmerama Radio, Katriona Spaven-Don about the United Nations House Scotland podcast, Connecting Women's Voices on Climate Justice, and to finish, I'll tell you about the Plant Voices podcast I've been running for Tapeworth Community Garden. Each podcast host gives a brief introduction followed by a five-minute highlight they selected for us from their show. We hope to develop the magazine episode concept in the future, so if you have ideas of how to grow it further, or if you know of anyone who should be included, get in touch on stories at scottishcommunitiescan.org.uk. So let's get this show on the road, shall we? Um, I started on Cole's Landed series when driving back from my holiday in August. I got so sucked into the story that I inhaled all five episodes of it in one go. It completely blew my mind with a fresh perspective on history and the future of farming. The series belongs to Farmerama Radio Family, an award-winning podcast sharing the voices behind regenerative farming from UK and beyond. The story was researched and told by Cole, a native of Highlands and Islands, from a very powerful personal perspective. It was produced by Katie Rivell. Now, let's hear from Cole about his motivation for creating it and an excerpt from episode one of the series, where he talks about coming back to his family farm uh, with an intention of taking it to a more sustainable future. Hi there, my name's Cole Gordon. I'm the narrator and co-producer of the series Landed from Farmerama. Uh, Landed as a series is centered around a statement I read, which I found very challenging, but I also sensed held a lot of truths. And the statement is, the small family farm is a colonial concept. It's a very, very jarring thought, which kind of shifts you out of your comfort zone a lot, um, certainly does for me. And given that the small family farm is a structure which most committed local food activists and agroecology, organic permaculture, regenerative agriculture generally operates in. So to question that is quite a fundamental question. I'm from a family farm myself. Uh, I come from a long line of farmers. And for the last 13 years or so, I've been working towards becoming a full-time farmer myself. 
and returning to our family farm in order to try to help with the running of it. But in this process, I've come to understand both how difficult it is for new entrants, um, aspiring farmers, to gain access to land, and also how complicated and tricky farm succession itself is. And what we've been seeing is rather than farms and farmland opening up to new farmers who are trying to find ways onto the land, the trend instead has been that it's increasingly becoming that farms are consolidating and getting bigger and bigger and going into the hands of fewer and fewer people. And for a long time, I've been really worried about what I see as an emerging succession crisis. At the moment, the average age of farmers in Scotland is over 59, and it's really unclear to me what's going to happen to all the farmland in Scotland when this generation of farmers who own and manage the land, when they start to retire. And to me, it makes sense that what's likely to happen is there's going to be this flood of farmland that goes onto the open market. But because of the size of most of these farms, very, very few people will be able to afford to bid on or or buy them. So we're going to just see these family farms disappearing very, very quickly. Given this and a number of other factors, I've struggled just to see how the small family farm as a model will be able to survive and stay afloat in anything other than exceptional circumstances. So when I when I read the statement, the small family farm is a colonial concept, it was to me a little bit of a light bulb moment. It questioned, is the small family farm the right approach to go forward with, to try to take forward to address a lot of the, the, the issues that I'd been coming up against. So Landed is a four-part series which is structured as a learning journey as I try to go through this process of understanding how the family farm came about, um, how it began to emerge in the part of the world where I live and where I'm from, which is the Highlands and Islands, what came before the family farm and what sort of things happened to allow it to become such a dominant and accepted norm as just the way things are. And I also explore a few possibilities of new and old models of land ownership, management and governance that have emerged in Scotland to see if there could be some relevance within them for how we could move forward to sort of like buck this trend of consolidation and addressing all sorts of really pertinent questions that we're facing today in terms of what to do with land and land's role so that is landed that's the that's what it's about the family farm structure only works if you're born in the right place you're born to the right family everything lines up at the right time you have exactly the right partner. It's just so inaccessible. It's not that promising a picture. And I haven't even mentioned Brexit yet, or the increased likelihood of trade deals that are unlikely to fall in favour of small farmers. We're also starting to see the emergence of carbon markets in response to the climate crisis, where large corporates are starting to snap up huge areas of land, including farmland, in order to plant trees, restore peatland, and to rewild. All of these things are critically important, but the way that they're shaping up to be implemented will almost certainly mean that even fewer people can live in, 
or have a say in what happens to these landscapes and the farms within them. We're starting to see policy that's incentivizing farmers to get out and to retire. But the question of who will have ownership and access to this freed up land remains unanswered to me. Take all of this together and it becomes clear that the family farm model has become very fragile. And to be honest, its future looks pretty bleak. The trajectory we're on right now is towards the opposite of an agroecological vision. I also don't believe that farmers like Dad want to see the scenario I've just described play out on their farms. These farmers are their farms. They love their farms. Their lives are completely intertwined with the land. These farmers have an attachment and connection to their land which goes far beyond what you might have with other things you could own. In many ways, this love and care for place is something I think could offer hope for the future and for imagining something different. But I'm not sure it's enough. I love the family farm too, and I desperately want to make sure it can thrive in the future. I want our farm, inching down, to be a model for how folks might be able to farm in ecological ways. I want to provide dignified and fulfilling livelihoods for many people and to feed my local community. And I want to feel confident that this will carry on once the next generation takes over. I've been wrangling with all this for a while now, focusing on farming practices and business models that might make this possible within the family farm. But in the summer of 2020, not all that long after we moved back to the farm, I stumbled across an online post with a sentence in it that shook me in a way I've rarely been shaken. I remember sitting at the farm an inch down, reading about all this stuff that was happening in America, um, watching the Black Lives Matter protests happening in Bristol, sort of streaming it virtually while we were sat in... Yeah, in the middle of nowhere, up, and up at the farm, just isolated from... Everything. everything else but it felt very Dif- far distant. removed and felt very impotent in a way like kind of really sort of protected because we're so far away but also frustrated that there didn't seem to be any outlet any way that yeah other i mean than just talking about it and you know we, yeah, all this kind of stuff we were just struggling to work out what what this means for us so yeah i was i was scrolling through my social media feed in the aftermath of, of all these demonstrations and, and protests, very much with this on my mind. And we'd had all these conversations and trying to work out what it means for us up here, so far removed from where all this stuff seemed to be playing out. And yeah, came across this sentence that just jumped out at me. Um, The small family farm is a colonial concept. I felt like I'd been punched in the stomach. I don't know, maybe it's been like sort of building for subconsciously or just under the surface for perhaps a long time. Maybe there have been doubts there, but this just rang so true for me. I I didn't quite understand why, but yeah, what if... What if we've got the wrong idea? 
what if this is the wrong approach? What does this mean? What does this mean for us? Mm. What does it mean for inching down? It's so much more layers to peel back and work out how did we get here? I came away from that moment with my mind buzzing. What were the implications of this for me, for other people in similar situations to myself, and for society as a whole? From this very personal look at the future of farming at a national scale, next we move into the international arena, focusing on the intersection of climate justice and feminism. We hear from Catriona about the United Nations House of Scotland podcast presenting women's perspectives on climate justice from Scotland and around the world. It's not the first time we hear Catriona's voice either. Uh, you might remember her story of an inspired vision of Edinburgh in 2050, which she wrote after taking part in one of Scan's storytelling workshops run by Paul Bristow last year. You can hear it again at 14 minutes and 30 seconds of episode 11 of our 1000 Better Stories podcast. But now let's listen to her talk about the brand new podcast she's producing with the United Nations House Scotland. My name is Katrina Spavendon and I'm a co-host on Connecting Women's Voices on Climate Justice. At the intersection, Climate, Gender and Regenerative Futures is the first episode in UN House Scotland's Climate and Gender podcast series, which brings together women activists from around the world to dialogue on shared strategies and common goals for climate action. Over the past decade, UN House Scotland has been working to foster a community of engagement around UN goals and values through outreach with schools, students, parliament and civil society. We recognise that this is an imperative time to act on the climate and ecological crises and to create tangible change for a healthy and sustainable future. In the clip we've chosen, May East provides a refreshing perspective on the Sustainable Development Goals and the importance of policy and practice working hand in hand, exactly what UN House Scotland promotes and works to achieve. We believe that we can create a better world for us all through grassroots movement building and positive, progressive policy change. It's really exciting to see that these imperative conversations are happening. Um, and obviously Scotland this year is one of the key uh, locations for these conversations, given that COP26 will be happening in November in Glasgow. I'm interested in this dynamic of, you know, the grassroots and strategy community based solutions, um, community led solutions as well, community driven solutions. Um, and at UN House here in Scotland, um, we look to promote the goals and values of the UN at this grassroots level. So through community outreach, through public engagement um, and engagement with the parliament. Um, so I'm interested that Isadora, you've previously worked with the UNDP in Brasilia, in Brasilia, and May, you're a UNITAR fellow and have worked extensively on the SDGs. So maybe you can tell us, May, about um, about this work on the SDGs and your perceptions of what still needs to be done. Um, in relation to this podcast, we are, I guess, specifically thinking about SDGs five and thirteen, gender equality and climate action. 
Yes, I think when we start working with uh, SDGs on the ground, it's very important that we take this perspective of policy resources and practice. Because um, if you, for instance, you start looking, and first of all, let's say that SDG for me is a framework, it's not a goal. It's a framework for us to start looking at how are we redesigning our human presence in our communities. So it helps us to have a lexicon, a way of explaining what is already emerging. It's not that our communities are going to be following what the UN is saying. It's just like a framework in, in a, a way of, of narrating what's already happening on the ground. Mm -hmm. And in this context, I would say that when you start looking at the SDGs again, uh, we cannot be, you know, chopping the reality in 17 pieces in order. We have to start working at the interdependencies between the goals. Mm -hmm. And it's great that our conversation today is connecting five to 13 women and climate change. But I would say from my perspective, it also connects with many other ones because for me, climate change and women can only be resolved as equation. We cannot can only bring regeneration if we look at ecosystems, new economic, if we talk about empowerment, if we talk about education. So everything is connected. But when everything is in connected and we're looking at the interdependencies because by looking at the interdependencies that's where innovation can emerge. Uh, I would say that in my experience on the ground with communities um, you need to look at three levels at the same time policy resources and practice. Sometimes you go to a place and there's already lots of examples how that SDG is already working but it reaches a, a, a glass ceiling because there is not enough resources or there's no policy to help. And sometimes SDGs have very strong policies, but they don't have resources to implement. So the way for us to analyze how to bring this framework to really unleash the power of sustainability in that specific community, you need to analyze and try to create a symbiotic relationship between, yes, we need policies, we could policies guide. We need to resource those policies and those policies and resources need to be based upon what is already emerging from the community. So once you look to this uh, trifocal lens, um, I see um, potential of this framework really uh, speeding up the process of the redesign of our human presence in our territories. But sometimes you have only policies and nothing happens, or sometimes you have only grassroots and you can't do more than what you're already doing. So combining the three is really important. Mm, yeah, that's so interesting to to, to really consider that those three are, are, as you say, totally intertwined and that you can't really achieve one without the other or work through one without the other. And I think that, you know, looking ahead to COP, then the policies might be there, but who's making the policies? And then we come back to this point of nothing about us without us and really making sure that those who are most affected are also those who have their voices heard and listened to in the process of policy making. 
Um, and historically, that hasn't been the case at COP, has it? Because less than a quarter of delegation heads are women. Um, and many of those women who are represented come from the global north. Um, and we know from, from recent research that 80% of those displaced by climate change are women, um, as well as, you know, beyond displacement, many of the other impacts that come along with this crisis, which is worsening by the day. So why does this discrepancy exist? That's a big question. This goes to kind of, you know, the heart of gender inequalities across the world. But, you know, we've, we, we know that policies can make a difference. We know that we are, have to be informed by practice and we've got to support the resources in order for it to get off the ground and have that impact. That was a rather topical perspective with the UN's COP26 less than a month away and a poignant reminder about the global context for what we're doing here in Scotland. To finish, we have a much more localised point of view from Taipo in Fife, just across the water uh, from Dundee. I started the Plant Voices podcast from Taipo Community Garden in autumn 2019. I blame the excellent training provided by Media Education in Edinburgh through SCAN's Future Voices project. We've been lucky to have support for the podcast through funding from Climate Challenge Fund since. PLANT, in the podcast title, stands for People Learning About Nature in Tayport, a subgroup of Tayport Community Trust. We have focused on local stories about gardening, food, nature and climate change, and we try to include as many voices from Tayport community as possible. This means a lot of running around Tayport and trying to record vox pops under often challenging wind conditions, which gives our efforts, let's say, some unique texture. It also means involving our volunteers in interviewing and production as much as possible. So it's grown into more of a community effort, really. We often cover local green projects and inspiring stories of personal climate action from local residents. But I'm particularly fond of telling stories about the landscape around us and building on people's links to nature and local heritage to explore how the place has changed through time, including recent effects of climate change, which unfortunately are starting to be visible locally as well. I like to think that we can use this connection to our town and its landscape's past transformations as a basis for imagining the transformations required for us to build a better future here in Tayport and in Scotland and in the world, of course. So I chose an excerpt from our February episode, which was linked to the annual Show the Love campaign by Climate Coalition. The campaign encourages everyone to celebrate things we love and want to protect from climate emergency. And so we focused on Tensmere Forest and National Nature Reserve, everyone's favourite place here on Tayport's doorstep. You'll hear from Marie Calith, a new Tensmere NNR manager, and Tony Wilson, who used to be a countryside ranger in the area and has lived here uh, for over 30 years. There are also a couple of vox pops from Tensmere visitors. Right, so I'm Marika and I'm the reserve manager here at Tentsphere. Um, the reason that I think this place is so special is, so the nature reserve is made up of three different sites. We've got Tentsphere Point, Morton Locks and Tayport Heath. And I think the beauty of it is we've got the beach, we've got the dunes and we've also got Morton Locks, which is the fresh locks inland. And you can see such a range of species in one day. Um, you can be down at Morton Locks and see all the red squirrels. You can see everything on the loch. We've got tufted ducks, the swans and other water birds, lots of teal. And then you can go down to Tentsphere Point 
and you've got a chance of seeing an eagle, you could see the seals hauled out and you're just on the biggest foreshore. Like you walk over the dunes and you just, it never looks the same. I've been here a year and a half and every time I go down there, I'm just amazed at how different it looks, but it always looks amazing. I love Tensmuir. I just love going there for wanders. But I was thinking of a time this year, and I was getting very stressed with work, and I thought I must stop, must go for a walk. Been online for days and days, and I went into the forest, and I was just thinking, work and work, work, work. And then I stopped and I looked around, and I was in the most beautiful place. It was breathtaking. It was autumn. Everything was golden. I was like on this golden path, and it really made me think to myself, you know, enough now. Just appreciate the place you live, how beautiful it is, and what a beautiful world it is. And it was just totally uplifting, and that's what Tensmuir does for me when I go and visit it. So we are all obviously very fond of Tensmuir around here, and it's been a real blessing to have it at our doorstep during lockdown especially. And this month we are taking part in um, the Show the Love campaign by Climate Coalition to encourage people to think about things they love and want to protect from climate change. And we thought it would be interesting to explore how climate change might affect Tensmuir. So um, I know that um, Adaptation Scotland has published a nice little summary of changes in uh, Scottish climate that that have already happened, including rising sea levels and increase in temperature. The 10 last years were the hottest on record, I think, and also increased rainfall and increased intensity of rainfall. So, I mean, at least in terms of physical environment that we can see things happening. I was... Wondering whether uh, you could um, tell us how climate change is affecting tents, mills, plants and animals already, whether there's any effects that you know of. Nobody's 100% sure exactly how climate change is going to affect things. You know, it's, it's, as somebody once said, it's, a, it's an experiment we're running, uh, but we've no idea what the outcome's going to be. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Give it a hundred years, and we might know something better. But uh, but how it's going to impact on local climates, on weather patterns, on sea level, uh, until it kind of develops more, uh, we're we're only hypothesising uh, and using computer modelling to kind of work out where things might go. It was like a bird watch place, I think. One of the animals that I've seen there is a kingfisher. And that was my first kingfisher. We saw it dive in for a fish. Yeah, I really like animals. They're my favourite thing. The, the easiest thing to monitor is uh, just recording species. Now, having just talked a little bit about invertebrates and, and microfungi and things like that, the, the easier ones to identify and, and see are birds and some butterfly species. Uh, things that are obvious, so they're kind of the key indicator species people would be looking for. And certainly over the last, well, 30 years, I, I've actually more than 30 years I've worked in the area, there have been species moved into Fife that were occasional records or were never recorded in the county. So the obvious ones to speak about would probably be butterflies. Uh, I don't recall seeing comma butterflies in Fife before probably the late 90s, maybe early 2000s. Orange tip butterflies were much less frequent 30 years ago than they are now. 
and the evidence seems to suggest that this may be because they're able to uh, survive the winter slightly better because we have got winter periods now. Obviously, we had a really cold snap recently, and 10 years ago, we had a, one of the coldest winters on record, but it's differentiating weather from climate. The, the trend is for uh, a warming. Um, actually, a friend of mine took me, she knows a lot of paths, and um, so she took me on, on paths I'd never been to, and there's a favourite path that's been sort of um, cleared through the wood right so it's a bit off the usual route and it's very very peaceful uh, very quiet and very peaceful and that's probably a new favorite of mine but of course the bird hides are always a draw and it's always wonderful to see so many different species of birds not to mention the red squirrels of course that are very entertaining so it's just a lovely place This concludes our first magazine episode. If you'd like to follow up and listen to the featured podcasts, we provided links to all of them in the episode notes. As I mentioned in the introduction, we are working towards developing the idea of Podcasting Collective to amplify our voices across communities, taking action on climate and building a better future for everyone. Magazine episodes are one of the ideas we're trying out. Soon we are also launching a monthly lunchtime podcasting Skillshares. Get in touch if you are interested in joining in as a participant or to share your own skills and experiences as an audio storyteller. We are also planning longer skills workshops, so let us know if there's anything you are particularly interested in learning. And look out for news of microgrants for storytelling work as well. So that's all from us today. Till next time, be well. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a like and maybe even a review. It will really help us reach a wider audience. If something exciting is happening in your own community, be sure to let us know so that we can help you tell your own story. Or maybe you would like to join our brand new Storyteller Collective. You can drop our Story Weavers a line at stories at scottishcommunitiescan.org.uk. To keep up to date, check out our website at scottishcommunitiescan.org.uk or find us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram or simply sign up to the newsletter. Mm-hmm.